Good morning. It's good to see you today. Uh, today we end our series Wavelength on hearing God's voice. And uh, hopefully uh, soon I can put an end to this televangelist hair as soon as I am able to get into a barber shop. I tried this morning and uh, everybody else has the same idea after six weeks or whatever of quarantine, go figure. But until then, I'm just going to have to remain poofy. But it's good to see you today and it's been a good worship service already. I'm looking forward to the songs we're going to enjoy after this. So this is the end of this series, but I hope for you and for me, it's just the beginning of a lifetime of learning to hear God's voice, of learning this, developing the skill of hearing Him speak and of conforming our lives to His will and following step by step His plan as He reveals it, because that's really the way to live. But today I want to end on kind of an interesting note. What do we do when, no matter what we try, we can't hear God's voice? Because those things happen. The Word of God talks about it. Deuteronomy 28, Moses says, there will be times when the heavens seem like bronze. Your prayers will bounce back at you as if they can't penetrate uh, the throne room of heaven. Sometimes we pray and pray and pray and don't seem to get any answer at all. Sometimes we seek God's will and we have no idea after praying, fasting, seeking His face. We have no idea what He wants us to do. Sometimes we even doubt. This happens to the best of Christians. Sometimes, sometimes we doubt His love. We doubt His wisdom. We doubt whether He really cares for us. We may even doubt that He's there. So what happens in those moments when we feel all alone, literally God forsaken? And it, it happens, again, to very good Christians, not just those who are weak or, or beginners. St. John of the Cross was a medieval Spanish monk. I dare say he knew more about Jesus in his pinky finger than I do in my whole miserable body. And yet, he experienced this in a profound way. He gave it a name that we still use today. He called it the dark night of the soul. And what do we do when we're in the dark night of the soul? David experienced it. He wrote about it in several places, but especially in our text for today, Psalm 13. And here's how it goes. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemy say I have prevailed over him, lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. This psalm is written by King David, the man after God's own heart. And based on the context, based on the fact that he's talking about his enemy who's pursuing him, we can assume that this is written during the period of time before David becomes king when he is being chased and hunted by King Saul and his armies. And we read about that in the book of 1 Samuel. And this is a difficult time for David. But notice that his anguish in the psalm isn't because he's being hunted. It's not because he's gone from a hero to a fugitive. It's not because he's afraid he's going to die. His anguish is because he wishes God would speak. He wishes he could hear God's voice. This is David. This is the one who's communed with God in the shepherd field and called him uh, my shepherd, that, that because of him I shall not want. This is the one who has written so many of these wonderful psalms. And now picture him sitting in a cave 
hiding out, listening for the sound of a, a team of horses coming down the road or, or through the wilderness. He, he knows that sooner or later Saul's army is going to find him, is going to pinpoint his location, is going to zero in on him. And he's waiting. He's got his hand on the hilt of his sword constantly. He, he rarely sleeps. He barely eats. He thinks back to that day when he was just a boy in the village of Bethlehem, when he got that call from, from the sheep field to come in. And there was the, the prophet Samuel, this strange man who had shown up unexpectedly and anointed him in front of his father and brothers and said, you're going to be the king. And that was a great day for David. That was a day of such excitement and such anticipation of the future. But now here it is years later, and David's still not only not king, but he looks like he might die at any moment, and he can't hear from God. And yet, David overcame his dark night of the soul. David went on to write many more psalms. David went on to be Israel's greatest king until Jesus himself. So what can we learn from him about how we respond when God doesn't seem to be speaking to us, when we can't hear his voice? Three things that I see in David and in this psalm. Number one, in those moments we need to be honest with God. Be honest with him. Notice the first two verses of the psalm. David says the phrase, how long, four different times. How long, O Lord? Are you going to hide your face from me forever? How long must I take counsel in my soul? In other words, how long do I have to wrestle with my thoughts? How long do I have to roll around on my bed with worry? He, he says, will you forget me forever? And that's, that's hyperbole. David knows intellectually that God hasn't forgotten him. God can't forget anything and, and that this period won't last forever. I, to me, I equate it with those moments when the person you love most in the world is angry with you. You've had a fight and the two of you are estranged for a moment and things are awkward between you. Maybe you're not even talking to each other. And in that moment, you know intellectually, we're going to get beyond this. She loves me. He loves me. It's going to be okay. But at that moment, it feels like this is never going to be okay. This is never going to end. We're, we're never going to get back what we had before. And that's what David feels in this moment. Will you forget me forever? He says, I have sorrow in my heart every day. And in verse 3, he says, in essence, if you don't answer me, I'm going to die. Again, hyperbole, but this is how David really feels. He is being honest with God. He's not being politically correct. He's not, being, he's not trying to sound spiritual. He's just sharing, Lord, this is how I feel. And if you know the Psalms, you know this is not unusual for David. David wrote many Psalms, and when you, when you break down all the 150 Psalms into categories, okay, here's your Psalms of praise, and here's your Psalms of petition, the biggest category of all, believe it or not, are Psalms of lament. In other words, Psalms where the chief object of the Psalm is to complain to God. Lord, why is this happening? Lord, this is what's going on. Where are you? That's the, the biggest number of the Psalms. And these were the hymns that Jesus grew up singing. These were the hymns that the Israelites sang for centuries. So the Israelites were, were used to this idea of being honest before God, whereas we're more tempted to put on a good face, not just before other people, but even in our prayers. Here's another story, and I shared this this past Wednesday in my tough question. But Matthew 11 shares the story of John the Baptist. And John, probably one of the most courageous people who ever lived, one of those people, one of those rare people who really didn't care what anybody thought of him except for God. Um, John the Baptist at this period in Matthew 11 is imprisoned for the simple crime of criticizing the king. 
All he did was point out that the king had embroiled himself in an adulterous, incestuous relationship, and King Herod threw him in jail. And now he's going to die. And he sends a message to Jesus, his cousin, the Messiah, that says, are you the one who was promised, or should we wait for someone else? And this is astonishing. This is, this is totally out of the blue, because John is, was literally the first human being to recognize Jesus for who he was. John recognized Jesus as Messiah literally while John was in his mother's womb. John was the one who pointed Jesus and said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He sent some of his own followers to become Jesus' first disciples. John was the one whose whole purpose in life was to be the forerunner of the Messiah, to prepare the way for the Messiah. And now he's doubting that Jesus is that Messiah. How can that be? And you would think that Jesus, when he gets this message, would say, go back and tell John to put on his big boy pants because we got no room for snowflakes in this kingdom. But he doesn't say that. He doesn't criticize John at all. In fact, he does two things. If you read Matthew 11, first, he says, go back and tell John, here's what I'm doing. I'm, I'm healing blind people and I'm raising uh, dead people and I'm preaching the gospel to the poor and I'm doing everything that the prophets said I would. So he sends him reassurance. And then he turns to the crowd and he says, Y'all remember John, right? What was John like? John was a bold prophet. He was an amazing man of God. In fact, Jesus goes so far as to say, there's never been a person born of women who was greater than John. So here John expresses profound doubts about Jesus' identity, and Jesus responds by reassuring him and praising him. So if you're worried that you have to pretend to be stronger before God, if you're worried that that God is going to be angry with you for praying to him and expressing doubts and fears and discouragement, you're on the wrong track because God loves you and God already knows those thoughts anyway. And you might say, yeah, but Jeff, aren't doubts and discouragements and fears, aren't those signs of weak faith? Yes, and that's okay. Yeah, God wants us to overcome that. God wants us to go beyond that. He doesn't want us to stay in that, that stage of doubting and, 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 and instability in our faith. But pretending we're, we're stronger than we are doesn't actually make us stronger. In fact, when you read the psalm, I think it's significant. David starts off the psalm desperate. He ends up the psalm victorious. He starts off the psalm discouraged. He ends up the psalm hopeful. And that doesn't mean it happens that fast with just a simple prayer. What it does mean is honesty leads to healing. So be honest before God. When you have doubts, God can take it. In fact, he wants you to share with him what's really going on in your heart. The second thing I see in David is examine your heart. Be aware of what's going on inside of you. Psalm 66, 18 says, if I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. So sometimes what's blocking us from hearing God's voice is us. Sometimes the reason we can't discern his will is because of some sin inside of us. And here's one thing you notice about God when you read the Bible. God loves us, and God's love is not like the love of a grandfather who just can't help himself. He, he just has to give us presents constantly. No, it's more like a good father. And a good father or a good mother love their kids too much to let them be happy in their sin. God loves us too much to let us be happy in our sin. He will not endorse, he will not support us as we go off on our own and make mistakes and, and head off in a self-destructive direction. And so as a means of getting our attention, yeah, sometimes he'll be silent. Sometimes he will 
He will put the heavens of bronze above our heads and we'll realize something has gone wrong between me and God. And, and I got to tell you, as a, as a way of getting our attention, I prefer silence instead of fire and brimstone or God lobbing beach ball-sized hailstones on our heads. God sometimes gets our attention by not answering. And it can be an overt sin, yes. It can be because we're actively willing, willfully being rebellious against him in some area of our lives, but it doesn't have to be that. You could examine your heart in a moment of, of, of darkness between you and God and say, well, I haven't killed anybody. I haven't, I haven't started stealing money from a boss. I haven't started cheating on my spouse. What's going on? Maybe it's not so much an overt sin as the fact that you're trying to use God to get what you want. I think we're all guilty of this from time to time. We use God like a magic eight ball. We don't really have any interest in knowing him better or conforming ourselves to his will. We just want an answer to this one question. So examine your heart and ask, is there, is there something in me that's getting in the way? In fact, Psalm 139, 23 through 24, I think is a great little scripture for Christians to memorize and use in prayer on a regular basis. You've probably heard these words. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. I'm not saying it's always our fault when we can't hear God, but when we can't hear from God, that ought to be the first place we turn. Examine our hearts. Get quiet before him. I read about uh, a man years ago uh, who was unloading hay in his hay barn, and when he got done, he noticed that his watch was missing. Now, this watch was a pocket watch that he carried with him at all times. It had been passed down to him from his dad, and it had belonged to his father's father before. So it was a priceless thing. He carried it just because he loved it. it he, he felt like, I, I never want to be parted from this. But now it was missing. And so he, he, of course, walks through the hay barn and tries to find it, can't find it. He calls his neighbors. They come over. They literally take every hay bale out of the barn. They sweep the floor. They look everywhere. They search every corner. They can't find it. And so the man finally gives up after hours of this. And then the little boy, after they had given up and everybody had gone home, the, the son of the man who had lost the watch goes into the, the hay barn. And a few minutes later, he comes out with the watch. And the dad is overjoyed, and he's extremely impressed. And he says, son, how on earth did you find it? And the boy said, well, after everybody was gone, I went inside, and I laid down, and I got real still and real quiet, and I heard the watch ticking. And sometimes that's what it takes from us. We have to quiet our hearts. We have to quiet our souls. We have to get honest before God. As it says in Psalm 46.10, be still and know that I am God. And that word be still in Hebrew literally means Cease striving. So God is saying in, in Psalm 46.10, this famous verse, he's saying, stop fighting against me. Stop trying to tell me what to do. Stop, stop trying to be in charge. If you'll just be still and let me be God, you'll hear my voice. Sometimes that's what it takes from us. We need to examine our hearts and just say, Lord, is there anything in, the, in me that's getting in the way? And then third, the third thing we see in David in Psalm 13 is keep on seeking God. Notice the last two verses. Notice in those last two verses, he, he goes from desperate to hopeful. He says, um, I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart will rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. See, this was written, keep in mind, it was written during the trial, not after it was over. 
So in the midst of his darkness, as David is cowering in the cave, wondering if he's going to live or die, he's able to write, I know I'm going to rejoice. I know I will get through this. I know I will praise the Lord. He kept on seeking God. He did not let this time of doubt, this time of silence, shake his ultimate faith in his father. My grandfather, my mom's dad, was a man of great faith, uh, a man who taught Sunday school for most of his life. Um, he, although he never went to college, really, aside from his time in the Navy during World War II, never really left uh, the little country village we grew up in, and yet knew the Bible better than almost anybody I've ever known. And in his later years, he was really fond of quoting Job thirteen fifteen. If you know anything about Job, the story of Job is the story of an extremely righteous man who nevertheless experiences a series of incredible tragedies. His children die. His wealth is, is vanished in a vapor. Uh, his health is failing. He, he's lost everything except his wife, and his wife is so heartbroken she can't comfort him. So he's lost everything, and he's sitting uh, uh, in dust and ashes, scraping the sores that have burst out on his skin, and he's asking God, Lord, why is this happening? Why won't you speak to me? We've had this great relationship all my life, and now I come to you for help, and I don't hear from you. Why won't you let me defend myself and, and find out what I've done wrong? And he's hear, hearing nothing back from God. And yet in the midst of all of that, Job thirteen fifteen, he says, though he slay me, yet will I put my hope in him. Here's a man who has lost everything, who more than anybody else has reason to doubt and expresses those doubts, and yet he's able to say, yeah, but I still put all my hope in God. Even if he kills me, I'm going to still believe that he knows what he's doing. I want you to think about it this way. Uh, imagine that I'm, on, I'm in a wreck on I-45, and my car is totaled, and I'm standing out there in the hot sun not knowing what to do, I whip out my cell phone and I call my wife to come pick me up. And imagine it goes straight to voicemail. And I wait. And I call again. Still no answer. And I wait. Imagine an hour goes by and, and I'm sweating my eyeballs out and on the verge of, of, uh, on the verge of dying of heat stroke. Still nothing. Now imagine a week later I'm talking to you about all this. And I, I'm complaining, and I say, man, I stood out there for an hour. I, I, I nearly passed out, and finally she shows up, and she picks me up. Can you believe that? Can you believe she wasn't there the moment I called? She should have come running. Now, if you know my wife, if you know Carrie Berger at all, here's what you're going to say to me. You're going to say, you need to back off, buddy. I mean, you've been married 28 years to this woman. By the way, it will be 28 years next week. Hallelujah. Hasn't she proven by now? that she's reliable? Hasn't she proven by now that she loves you? Can you really doubt based on this one circumstance that you've married a good woman who, who will be there for you? Don't you think after all that you've been through with her, she's earned a little benefit of the doubt that if she wasn't there immediately, there has to be a good reason for it? And the answer to the question is yes. You would be right if you said those words. And if that's true of Carrie who's a sinner like me and like you, how much more true is it of God? See, God has been Lord of the universe forever, and he's never failed, not once. This is, this is a God who became a human and lived an entire life without sin. No one's ever done that. No one's ever come close. This is a God, most importantly, 
who proved his love for us by dying in our place when he didn't have to. When we were still his enemies, he died for us. That God doesn't have to prove anything to us. Hasn't he earned a little benefit of the doubt in our books? Hasn't he earned the right that when we experience moments of doubt, discouragement, fear, worry, when we can't hear his voice, hasn't he earned uh, the right for us to say, yeah, well, God must have a, a good reason why he's not answering me now. I'm going to keep on trusting him. Yes, he has. And I've got a great story from the scriptures. There's so many to, to prove this. In fact, Henry Blackaby says we should actually be excited when we experience these moments of silence, these moments of doubt, because in the scriptures, that's usually what happens right before God does something really big, something wonderful. So my example that I'm going to share with you, I could choose one of many, John 11. John 11, Mary and Martha, two of Jesus' closest friends, they have a brother named Lazarus. Maybe you've heard of him. And Lazarus gets very sick, sick enough that they say, we need to get Jesus here. And Jesus is way up in the north in Galilee. And, and Mary and Martha and Lazarus are in Bethany, right next to Jerusalem on the south side of Israel. But they send the message anyway because they think Jesus is going to come. When he hears the message, when he gets the message, he'll be here. He's going to rescue our brother. We know he's able. In fact, they're so confident. They send a message that says, Lord, the one whom you love is sick. They don't even mention his name. They know this is how much Jesus loves our brother. The one you love is sick. And then they wait. And days pass. And their brother's getting sicker and sicker. And still, I'm sure they kept thinking, he's going to be here any moment. He's going to show up. He's going to heal Lazarus. We know it. We've seen him do it before. And then Lazarus dies. Put him in a, in, a, in a stone tomb. They roll the stone in front of it. And four days pass. Four days after Lazarus has been buried, Jesus shows up. You know what the first words that both Mary and Martha say to Jesus separately when they see him? You know what those words were? They say, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. I don't think it's an accusation. I think it's a statement of fact. But I think it's also a question. Lord, where were you? Why didn't you come? We, we thought you'd be in fact, John tells us that when Jesus got the message that Lazarus was sick, he waited two full days before he even started walking towards Bethany. Why would he do that? Why was Jesus silent? He had a good reason. He, he, he knew that the plan of God was not that Lazarus would be healed, but that he'd be raised. If you know the rest of John 11, you know that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And that miracle that Jesus performed brought many, many people into the family of God. Many people there in the Bethany, Jerusalem area came to be believers in the Messiah and Jesus and the Savior. So Jesus had a good reason for being silent, for not showing up right when they called. We can believe in our moments of darkness and silence that God knows what he's doing. We can trust him. Let me just close with this. Let me tell you about the ultimate silence of God. One day, one day in an ordinary spring day in Jerusalem, the sky went dark in the middle of the afternoon, dark as midnight, dark as black as the sin that separated us from the Father himself. And Jesus, in the midst of that darkness, cried out in pain, pain like no one has ever experienced before or ever will. And then he died. He breathed his last. And the Almighty Lord of the universe had come to us and we had nailed him to a cross. It was the darkest moment in human history. And all that night and all the next day, the 
people who had given up their lives to follow him, you can imagine what they were experiencing. They were they had to be, have been numb with grief, just sitting there. They probably would have gone home if it hadn't been the Sabbath and they were restricted. I doubt they even had the strength to pray. Yet, Sunday morning dawn, bright and early, Mary Magdalene and some of the other women were headed to the tomb, didn't know what else to do. And they found the tomb empty. The stone rolled away. Mary herself encountered Jesus. And later that afternoon, that evening, Jesus himself appeared to the, the apostles inside a locked room saying, peace be with you. He was here. The world's never been the same since then. See, I tell you that story because right now, life for you might feel like the Saturday before Easter. Darkness, doubt, discouragement, grief. But just remember, sorrow lasts for a night, but joy comes in the morning. God is getting ready to do something big. So don't give up on it. He will never give up on it.